Do you know what, Alan? Fun fact, I am the first guest host on Fun Fact. <laughs> this is true, and I'm very excited to have Casey List, professional podcaster, our first guest on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, it is a pleasure and an honor to fill in for Arik. You know, we were just discussing before the show whether or not uh, baby Arik is here, and we are not 100% sure. But one way or another, our family leave practices here. I say R as though it's my podcast, but here we are. Um, <laughs> on this show. <laughs> on this show. Uh, the family leave practices on this your show, Alan, apparently are much more forgiving than the rest of the country in which Arik and I live. And so uh, you have given him or you have permitted him or blessed him or what have you with paternity leave, whether or not the baby is actually here yet. And that is very kind of you. Very Canadian of you. That's what you get when you have a Canada-US cross podcast. Mm -hmm. you, get, mm -hmm. uh, you get just a little bit of socialism creeps. <laughs> <laughs> Fun fact, Microsoft Office spies on you and reports unusual licensing patterns to the authorities. <laughs> Whoa, define the authorities. I'm assuming there's huge scare quotes and air quotes all around that. The but... authorities is definitely in scare quotes in my notes. <laughs> all right. The, the authorities in this case are Microsoft licensing department. Ah, okay. okay. So the, the most important of all the quote unquote authorities. Yes. The authorities we all think of when we say somebody report this man to the authorities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so it spies on us. It spies. Well, it definitely spies on on my team at work. Uh, I assume that that probably means that it spies on other people. And this is one of those things that like had never occurred to me. I hadn't actually actively thought about. But when you think, how much money does Microsoft make from Office, and how long is the terms of use that you totally read all of when you agree to mm -hmm. every time? Um, what's the chance that they're going to try and verify that people are actually following the licenses to their internet connected software that's worth billions of dollars probably fairly high <laughs> one would think one would think so you um, discovered but... this in your own office you, you i thought you just said a moment ago that they're definitely spying on your office so that almost makes me think you've done some sleuthing i i have not done the um although actually that would be something that that should be a good follow-up is let's look at exactly what they report uh and try to like um do some wire sharking and mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. uh, inter accept what they send um but i have a more kind of like direct observation so on our team we don't use our office a lot we're just primarily doing um google docs and things like that um, but a couple of people needed to open or edit uh some microsoft office docs in the span of uh a week there's two independently someone would say hey oh i need to open this thing can i just get a license for it and i said sure but what i didn't think about is that you like in a bigger company they would go through some process with the uh toxic health stew that is the microsoft <laughs> office licensing portal and figure out how to like give them people to give people those licenses but for what we our situation people just went off and just bought a like office 365 it's just like their subscription version of sure. of office they just went online and like type to type and they just buy it for a month and then they expense it but what, that ha what happened there is that we had an office that had only one or two office licenses that suddenly had two new office licenses on the network that were like Microsoft Office, like non-enterprise edition or like mm. personal edition or whatever, mm -hmm. bought as two one-off subscriptions that were not like hooked up to the main subscription. And 
basically like that's an unusual licensing circumstance um and also it was in a licensing circumstance where there were no licensed copies of microsoft windows on the network too (laughs) oh no so completely coincidentally you know not (laughs) with no direct proof but completely completely coincidentally Mm -hmm. i promptly received an email informing me that we were lucky enough to have been selected to participate in a software asset management review Hooray! Good for you. Congratulations. Yay! Yeah, so that was super that was uh super fun and when the email came in I was like, right. Of course we are. <laughs> Delightful. Um, so, did you go through this review yet? Oh, I went through it and it was so fun. They definitely they definitely go to great lengths to make the process really enjoyable and not bureaucratic or anything oh, like that. Great. They just want to make everyone feel really positive and and make people feel like, man, I wish I spent more time interacting with Microsoft licensing. That's kind of their, <laughs> I think that's kind of their metric that they go for. Naturally. Yeah. The Excel spreadsheet that they sent me to fill out, assuming that I had Excel, which I happen to have, but no one else at the company right. had, was the most like hor- horrendous, like d- a dozen sub tabs and like just bizarre formatting and a whole bunch of like the, the fields. Because basically what they said is you have to tell us how many installations you have of all these things. And here's a spreadsheet of every single piece of software Microsoft has ever oh, made. God. <laughs> and and then asked like a whole bunch of questions like they would have fields. One of the fields was total number of personal computers. It's like, okay. But of course, I'm a programmer type. So I, I think, well, what do you define as a <laughs> What is a computer, computer anyway? And and like, what do you just want the ones the company owns, or what if the contractors own them? What if a uh, employee owns it and they're currently using it for work, or what if the employee uses a work computer at home? Mm-hmm, right? And mm-hmm. of course, like, and there there was no like legend or anything like that. And so I eventually figured out, like, okay, what do I, what do I think that the total number of computers is in the company? Okay, I finally figured. Okay, that's probably the number they want. And then I get to the next field number of personal computers with other operating system oh golly are you kidding (laughs) and i'm like okay other operating system so i I assume you mean non-microsoft but it doesn't actually say that um and i am then wondering more advanced questions like so are the other operating system computers included in the total number of personal computers <laughs> uh, what what have we done it turns out the answer is no <laughs> eventually after multiple phone calls and emails like i emailed them enough times with clarifying questions they're like can we please just talk on the phone oh perfect um which was like okay fine and so i actually talked to them uh, and then i had more follow-up questions for the further confusing things that were the consequences of their answers uh, but eventually the answer to the question of total number of personal computers was number of computers that employees or contractors use to do work at work that are windows computers i see that is definitely obvious given what you saw in that spreadsheet of course yeah exactly Uh, and number of personal computers with other operating system is yeah it's like Macs and linux computers so i enjoyed saying zero for total number of personal computers we don't doesn't make it sound like a very good (laughs) tech company but Oh, my word. So you ended up getting on the phone with them. Did you, like, negotiate with them? Did you get a slap on the wrist? Is this ongoing? I definitely tried to negotiate with them. 
because <laughs> initially they sent me this horrible thing the spreadsheet with 100 questions and all these fields and pages and pages of like exactly which versions of microsoft visio do we have installed which like of course it's like zero 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 and like even just filling all of the zeros into all these columns would have taken like a, a whole bunch of time and so i initially responded and said hey we don't have we don't have any Microsoft Windows computers. We don't use any of this stuff. The only Microsoft software we have is Office 365. So you can just check how many installations of we we have of that yourself. Like you have all the records. You don't yeah. need anything from us. Just that's what we have. And the res- response um, was. Software asset management is a process that Microsoft engages their customers with in order to help organizations control and optimize the use of software across their organization using a proven set of IT practices that unite people, process, and technology. Blah, 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 a bunch more like that. Um, And then basically a thinly veiled threat, and I would like to thank you for your cooperation in advance. (laughs) See, that's just so obnoxious to me that they think that they can just drop this on your lap and get you to spend a whole bunch of time on it. Like, I can understand them saying... defense they can drop this on my well, lap because that's true you're a much smaller company than microsoft that's true but i mean i feel like a more reasonable approach would have been like hey we see some weirdness can we just get on the phone and talk it over real quick like i don't think that mm-hmm. would have been so terrible and it would have saved everyone involved including them because you had all these clarifying questions which by the way i don't blame you for it would have saved them a ton of money too or a ton of time rather and then i guess uh, money as well yeah, I eventually got to the point that I was, I mean, I shouldn't do this, but I was slightly enjoying wasting their time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and they would they would kind of subtly encourage me that if I had further questions to maybe contact our IT vendor. Oh, wonderful. To help us fill out the form as if like our, a 10 person company mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. 2019 that has no Windows computers has an IT vendor. Naturally. Um, but but yeah, apparently, I, and I also like looked up a little bit. And if you keep stalling and pushing back, um, apparently they'll turn up the heat and start sending you uh, more invasive audits. Um, so this was like the least bad way to mm-hmm. to come up with a resolution. Right, and was the resolution reached? The resolution was reached. It turned out in the end that we actually had one more license of Office than we needed, and so we were able to discontinue that, and it cost them one hundred and thirty dollars a year. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, that's the best ending of the story ever. Oh god, that's tremendous. So you wasted a whole bunch. Well, because of them, you wasted a whole bunch of their time, and now we're paying them less money each year. Yes, wonderful. Yeah, exactly. And I got this fun story. So I guess it was a win, but uh, it did not make me want to license more Microsoft software. Oh, golly. That is that is something else. Uh, I, you know, uh, big business, it has its place. But big business, one of its many flaws is that it does not understand that there's any way to operate other than the big business, slow, bureaucratic way. You know, there's it just the idea of a 10-person company is like, what do you mean, a 10-person department? No, 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 no. Oh, you mean a 10-person team? I understand. No, 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 no. No, no. The whole of us are 10 people. You see this with Dropbox and other companies as they become enterprisey. Uh, like yeah, they serve yeah. a bunch of individual people and they think of their users as people. But then as your business more and more depends on giant enterprises and stuff, it becomes harder and harder to actually think like, oh, wait, there are people who have opinions and those opinions make a difference as to whether or not anyone uses the software like that just stops being true at a certain enterprise scale like at a certain scale you don't get to pick which like hr system you use or which file sync system you use or whatever it's just dictated to you so um yeah that's kind of the splash damage from from that but i got to save 130 dollars a year so i guess (laughs) win (laughs) that is absolutely tremendous that makes me very happy all right let me try this out on you alan Fun fact, there is a 
thousand square mile area in the eastern United States wherein radio transmissions are regulated and or banned entirely. 13,000 square miles. According to Wolfram Alpha, that is 33,670 square kilometers. That's a lot of square kilometers. Mm -hmm. So this is like, this is an area where radio transmission is either banned or restricted through the entire zone. Yes, asterisk. So it's a much more dramatic fun fact if I tell you kind of the, the, uh, the really aggressive version, which is that there's 13,000 square miles where you cannot have Wi-Fi, you cannot have cell phones, and everything is banned. And that's only slightly true. But, so actually, for some context, Delaware is 2,000 square miles. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, this is quite a large area. I'm trying to think of even where it could be. Well, uh. it, it is. Fun fact. The epicenter is in Green Bank, West Virginia, which even as an American means nothing to me. But the reason it's in Green Bank, West Virginia, is the epicenter is because there is a tremendous telescope in Green Bank, West Virginia, and it is a radio telescope. So oh, okay. what I'm referring to is the National Radio Quiet Zone. And like I said, it is 13,000 square miles. It is it, the epicenter is on the eastern edge of West Virginia. And I live in, in the center of regular Virginia. <laughs> I live in the center of <laughs> real Virginia. Of, of real Virginia. No, please, don't, please don't email me. Please email Arik for all, all West Virginians. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. That sounds perfect. Um, so I live in the middle of, uh, of Virginia. And as a matter of fact, just an hour west of me, on the western edge of Charlottesville, Virginia, which unfortunately made the news national news a couple of uh, a year or two ago, uh, that is actually included in the National Radio Quiet Zone. So it, it runs through a large part of the state of West Virginia and into Virginia as well, and down almost all the way to the bottom of Virginia. Now, for those of you who aren't American, Virginia is a relatively large state, all told. But the thing of it is, is that there are five different zones in the National Radio Quiet Zone. So it's actually a zone of zones, if you will. There are five zones. The Zone 1, which is the Radio Astronomy Instrument Zone, which is basically where the actual telescope is, that really and truly, you cannot have microwaves, you cannot have Wi-Fi, you cannot have cell phones, you can't you have... You can't have a microwave oven. Correct. Yes. Can't have a microwave oven. And if you do, it has to be encased in a Faraday cage to make sure oh, that <laughs> that no radio transmissions em, are emitted out of the microwave or, you know, they're, they're caught by the cage. Um, you can't even have a gasoline car. You must use diesel. I'm assuming Whoa. that's because of fuel injection, which is electronic in pretty much every car built in the last 30 years. But I'm not 100% sure about that. Um, or it could be the ignition, actually. That would make more sense because uh, diesels do not have spark plugs. But anyways, huh. uh, all that to say, that. when you're actually in zone one, you legitimately can't have Wi-Fi, can't have a cordless phone. You can't even have an automated door opener in like a grocery store, you know, where it just sees that somebody's walking in and opens the door for you. You can't even have that. The thing of it is, though, zone one is basically just a telescope. Right. Zone two is the observatory building zone, which is to say, you know, the surrounding area around the telescope. So the housing labs, the shops, the dorms, etc. And there are... I think this is still pretty aggressive. Like you still can't have Wi-Fi, still can't have cordless phones, still can't have the door openers, et cetera, et cetera. However, once you hit zone three, it seems, which is two miles around the uh, around the telescope, it gets less aggressive. And then there's zone four, which is 10 miles, and zone five, which is the 
10, you know, 13,000 square mile area that reaches all the way into Virginia and into Charlottesville. Now, Charlottesville, among other things, houses the University of Virginia, which is, you know, one of the best universities in the country. So I can assure you, having previously lived in Charlottesville, I had no idea this was a thing at the time. So the news reports you'll hear of the National Radio Quiet Zone are that, oh, you can't have radios anywhere in this 13,000 square mile area. And the reality is actually not quite as exciting, but it makes for a less exciting fun fact unless I pitch it as there's a 13,000 square mile area where you cannot have radios at all. This is a really large, like I'm looking at a map of this. This is like a ridiculously large, it's like a giant square. It is. Mm-hmm. Um, but bounded by like 80 degrees uh 80 degrees west on one side 78 degrees west on the other side that's like you know obviously a very large spot of the planet and they have um apparently like this one thing to say like okay technically you're not supposed to do this like technically you have to put your ipad in airplane mode on airplane mm-hmm. but not everyone actually remembers to do that but apparently they have trucks yep. that go around and try to <laughs> yep and they try to scan and the best part of it is though is that it apparently, this is like the most classic American uh, government sort of thing. Nobody really has the authority, we don't think, to actually do anything about an errant transmission. So it's basically, you do the best you can. And in fact, I found a PowerPoint where I think it's like an onboarding for employees of of the Green Bank uh, Radio Observatory. It's called NRAO, National Radio something Observatory, I think. Green Bank Policies for RFI Management. And one of the things it says in this presentation is that, let me find the quote, we will seek enforcement only as a last resort if friendly requests repeatedly fail, and also we solicit voluntary cooperation. So it seems like there's not a lot that can be done to really get people in trouble other than shake their fingers at them and and be very angry. I can imagine, though, that if you were, you know, if you were living close to this base and this uh, telescope that you would be maybe have some amount of pride in like hey we're the only place in the country or Mm -hmm. maybe in a large part of the world that that this work can be done and that has this kind of novel attribute and that maybe wanting to help keep that true i don't know i feel like it seems kind of special even even though it obviously wouldn't like feel different to not have any radio interference because you can't actually physically feel it well well hold on though fun fact there are people that think that they are allergic (laughs) to wi-fi and so they of course are and Mm -hmm. so this area is actually a very popular area for those and there's like a technical term for medical term for it i forget exactly what it's called like rf sensitivity or something like that but people people who feel like oh i'm allergic to wi-fi and what have you will move to this area of west virginia in order to bask in the wi-fi free zone that's actually not wi-fi free but you get the point (laughs) to bask in this area wherein there's significantly less radio interference than there would otherwise be i kind of love that because we know that the placebo effect can really have measurable positive impacts on people yeah yeah yeah. but having someone going around saying hey you can't have wi-fi like everybody stop stop is you know probably just bad for everybody and so (laughs) if anyone who feels really strongly like they would get a really nice positive uh placebo effect from uh not having wi-fi or not having radio interference the fact that they can like congregate and have like a little i don't know (laughs) a commune of non-radio interference (laughs) uh, i don't know that's a bit of a of a, a happy outcome a happy accident of creating something like this for actual scientific purposes exactly and so this was uh created by decree from congress in 1958 and one of the things that that i've found in my research is a lot of people have said you know 
we would love to be able to do this other places, but then that would involve removing things from these places. You know, let's say, right. and obviously Vancouver is a big, you know, vibrant city, but for the sake of argument, let's decide that Vancouver is not going to have radio anymore. Well, that's never going to work because there's way too many people, way too many, you know, established uh, like momentum about all these things. But this all started when about the only kind of radio that you would have had to worry about is like FM or AM radio. And so right. it's different here because they just haven't ever had it. And some of the stuff that they regulate in certain zones is fascinating. I mean, even a digital camera is considered to emit in certain parts of this area enough RF that they won't allow it. But the funny thing is, as I was doing this research, and and this was, I was reminded of this because uh, there's a television program that's on Sunday mornings here in the States called CBS Sunday Morning. And it's kind of a news magazine where they don't really talk that much about the news of the day. It's more of like interesting stories and human interest and stuff like that. And they did a piece on the National Radio Quiet Zone years ago, and I tried to dig it up and I couldn't. But I did dig up some other you know, journalistic pieces. There's one uh, that I linked to you, Alan, that we can put in the show notes from National Ge- Geographic, for example. And they paint it as though this entire town or county can't have cell phones and can't have Wi-Fi and can't have anything. But yet, one of the people they interviewed, like one of the younger people they interviewed said, oh, well, you know, we, I, I have to make sure that I have Wi-Fi everywhere I go in order to send or receive text messages. And the only text messages that I can receive are actually iMessages because, you know, those ride over the Internet, blah, blah, blah. Right. But it sounds like, you know, for example, Wi-Fi isn't a problem. Now, I do think that they do very heavily regulate cellular service. And I think they regulate basically any sort of stationary transmitter. So like an FM uh, radio station perhaps would have to directionally point that radio uh, frequency, you know, the, point the radio away from the satellite. And I think cell phone uh, operators have to do the same thing. But the news articles all paint this as, oh, you can't have Wi, you can't have Wi-Fi even. That's how barbaric it is. You can't have a cordless phone. And while that's true, it seems to be true only basically on the premises of the observatory. And that makes sense, like sense, just given the power level of a Wi-Fi base station versus a cellular transmission exactly. site, like they're way spewing way more noise and and chaos. I think I need to get one of these quiet zones in and around uh, my recording where I record here <laughs> at home, actually, because <laughs> recently I have new upstairs neighbors, and every few weeks I go to record this show, and I turn on my microphone, and there's just this hum oh, out of nowhere, which... I have spent a fair amount of time tracking down and have now isolated it down to it is not most of the common hums come from uh, your power lines or uh, some interference from something that's plugged in. Mm -hmm. But this is definitely electromagnetic in the air hum to the degree that like there's field lines somewhere above me. And I can tell that because if I rotate the microphone and like so that it is like either parallel to or uh, or intersecting the field lines, then the hum will dramatically increase or decrease. That's that's something else. It's too bad. You know, uh, what is that magic paper that you can get that'll show a magnetic field? You know what I'm thinking of? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder if you could like find some sort of equivalent. Probably not. But it would be cool to like hold it up and just like a poster board of it and just see if you can figure out what that is. That is fascinating. What could it possibly be? My guess is that one of their large appliances upstairs, uh, like the dryer mm-hmm, or something mm-hmm. like that, is a little bit poorly shielded or wire or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's something in it that is throwing out some amount of EM that doesn't 
cause problems with other equipment or at least not in a way that i notice immediately and then table flip because i'm trying to record in five minutes and suddenly it's like yeah it's actually it's not main time i think it's 120 hertz anyway i got way too rat hole trying to figure out like okay what is this and how do i stop it and a lot of people when you search hum they are like oh well you know figure out which power outlets cause it and i'm like it happens when my laptop is running on battery it's not the power outlet Mm -hmm. but um yeah, so that's fun. So I need to get one of these clients. Yeah, you just need to install a small one or put your entire office, you know, your in-home office in a Faraday cage. Yeah, but then I also need Wi-Fi still. <laughs> that's <laughs> a good point. Actually, never mind. Uh, well, you're just going to have to wire it as well. Uh, but no, just to, to put a period on this whole fun fact, uh, many, many years ago, I was skiing at Snowshoe, which is one of the larger mountains in, in my area, in my neck of the woods, which is in West Virginia, which is very much inside the National Radio Quiet Zone. And at the time, I thought it was very funny that on like one side of the mountain, I would get pretty darn stellar cell phone coverage. And on the other side, I wouldn't. And I just assumed it was something about being on the side of a mountain. But fast forward, you know, 15, 10 years, whatever it's been. And Snowshoe is very much within the National Radio Quiet Zone. And it would not surprise me if it's another instance of like directional cell phone towers where they can't just blanket in 360 degrees and they have to just point in certain directions. And I think that might be why. That's there's something kind of cool about being able to go the idea of going to a ski resort or whatever. Not that I am a digital, you know. There's so many medium posts about how you need to disconnect or whatever. But <laughs> if you, you can like go to the ski resort and you're like, you know what, I'm in this quiet zone and there's this zen of I don't have self service and that's okay and I'm just going to enjoy nature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the idea of that. What is what is the like relationship in between Virginia and West Virginia? Is this one of these like, uh, you know, there's a bit of a rivalry? Is it like, ah, we don't even think of the, about those people? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting question. So for what it's worth, I have to establish a baseline. I've only lived in Virginia since 2000. I went to school in Southwest Virginia, um, which will possibly become relevant later. Um, but then, you know, I, I did four years of school and then I moved to Charlottesville, actually, which, as the aforementioned town that's in the National Radio Quiet Zone. Uh, and then I've been living in Richmond for the last 10 years. Uh, I would say that an average Virginian's uh, opinion of West Virginia is somewhere in between the like madmen. I don't think about you at all. And mm-hmm. and <laughs> oh, yeah, they're they're those people that that live in the mountains and are very, very peculiar, which is, you know, the terrible stereotype. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying this is accurate at all, but that is the stereotype. It's like, oh, those weirdos that live in the mountains. And the reality of the situation is West Virginia is actually a, a, a colossally pretty state. And I have a dear friend that I went to uh, college with, and then he moved to Morgantown, West Virginia, uh, which is where West Virginia University is, which is, I believe, the biggest university in West Virginia. I pretty sure that's their capital um i'm probably i hope i didn't get that wrong but nevertheless uh it's a gorgeous gorgeous area and i think most um, most virginians you know i think it's everywhere you go you have to have somewhere else to look down upon right and so most of america would say oh virginia is a bunch of rednecks and in places in virginia that's true and in places in virginia that's not and then virginians look at west virginia and say oh it's a bunch of rednecks and again there's places that that's true and there's places that it's very much not. But uh, West Virginia is a colossally pretty state, irrespective of any of the people who live there who are mostly extremely lovely. And I imagine that the feeling is the a little bit the other way around, like probably in West Virginia, they feel like you're 
I don't know, fancy city people. Yeah, or snooty like and snooty, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and I, to the best of my knowledge, I am not good at Virginia history, uh, which actually, again, will become relevant later if we get if we have time. <laughs> but uh, but my understanding is West Virginia was part of Virginia for the longest time, and then kind of just split off at some juncture, probably around the time of the Civil War. Um, so they West are, Virginia is the one with like very strangely shaped borders. Yes. So coincidentally, uh, when I was in college, and, and again, this is Southwest Virginia, uh, very very close to the West Virginia state line. In fact. Uh, when I was a kid in, in in college, I would occasionally go to Princeton, West Virginia. I believe that was the name of the town, which was about an hour north of where my college was. And I would get Everclear to use at parties. And Everclear is grain alcohol, if you're not familiar. And it was not legal to be sold in Virginia at the time. It was legal in West Virginia. And so you would drive an hour. You'd cross the state line and you would see the strip club on one side. And then you would see the uh, the what I would call an ABC store or package or liquor store or what have you on the other side of the road. Um but where was I going with this? Why did Oh, yes, because uh, when I was in college, uh, I once met somebody from West Virginia and I asked, oh, where are you from in West Virginia? And Alan, I'd like you to please take your right hand and hold yes. it so that you, it's your, your palm is facing you. OK, so okay, your right yeah. hand is up in the air. Your palm is facing uh, you. Mm-hmm, I would mm-hmm. like you to give the air the middle finger. However, however, leave your thumb out. So you have okay middle finger with a thumb right, oh, and you yeah. are now looking at the state of West Virginia. Uh, yeah. uh-huh. And so what this person did was they said, "Oh, I'm from," and they flicked off the air and then pointed to somewhere <laughs> on their hand and said, "I'm from such and such." And I was like, well, "Oh, I get it, I get it." Uh, so and you can have a map ba- map with you mm-hmm, handy at all times, West Virginia map whenever you need it. Unfortunately, though, fun fact: the lines on your hand may or may not actually correspond to the interstates in West Virginia. Right. At least people would like to feel that they do, I imagine, from time to time. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So National Radio Quiet Zone. It's a thing, sort of. Yeah, that's super cool. And then, of course, there needs to be always a little bit of a conspiracy theory in there. And the, it seems like kind of looking at this, reading Wikipedia, that there's there's also a naval radio station. And the degree which the quiet zone is enforced for the telescope versus the degree that it's enforced for the naval uh, interception of radio signals from other countries mm-hmm. seems to be disputed. Mm-hmm. Of course, of course. It's always the Navy's of fault. Course. Of course, it's the Navy's <laughs> fault. Or in this case, maybe they're giving us something good. Maybe get some good astronomy out of it. Yeah, you never know. All right. Fun fact. Toys are way cheaper than they used to be. Really? Is that because they're all yeah. made of crummy plastic? It's because they're all made of crummy plastic and they're not made here anymore. Yeah, fair. Um, this is something that I hadn't really sort of absorbed until I became a parent. Mm. And I mean, when I was a kid, we weren't like super well off, but it was still like when we wanted certain toys or things like that, it would be like kind of expensive of like, oh, he want this, you know, Super Nintendo game that has, you know, whatever horrible graphics compared to now. And it would be like 100 Canadian dollars for this oh, one cartridge. And good like, grief. And that was like in 1996. So that's like $170 now or whatever right. with, with inflation. Um, and, you know, various like, you know, various economic impacts of you know toys weren't super expensive but they were a thing that had a non-trivial cost and now having a kid and we go to toys r us and i look at stuff and i'm like 
or you know Walmart even more extreme and toys are super cheap and I hadn't like fully absorbed that that's something that had changed and I was just like well maybe I just when I was a kid I didn't have any money so things seemed more expensive and there's a little bit of that um, but I'm going to send you and I'll post it also in the in the show notes um, this chart of the changes in prices of various things over the last 20 years. So since I was a kid and what uh, you were, um, we're about the same age, like you're in your 30s, late 30s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm 37. Yeah. yeah, so we're basically the same age. So. so since we were kids, the price of toys has apparently uh, decreased by as much as 75%. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. And TVs as well, or have also just taken a nosedive. Yeah. And things like software and cell service, like you would sort of expect those things to go down in price, which they, they have. Uh, and there's a few things that have been roughly similar price, like cars. People spend about as much after inflation on a car today as they did 20 years ago, uh, clothing, furnishings. And then, of course, the things that have gone dramatically up in cost are the things that you need, like housing and healthcare and mm-hmm. food uh, and textbooks and childcare. Wow. Yeah. Um, as much as TVs just, just completely collapsed, textbooks and college tuition, that that's almost a hockey stick. It's so much more expensive. Yeah, it's completely it's completely ridiculous. Um, so that's also an interesting like part of the fa- it's just fact of just more broadly how uh, prices have changed uh, over time. Um, but I thought the toys one was kind of interesting, and and because I had seen this, and I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of surprising to me. But I guess I had sort of noticed that. Um, and then I was looking at buying these. Do you know like Crayola markers? Obviously, mm-hmm. do you know the Pip Squeaks? Have you seen those? No. They're little washable markers that are not the full length of a, of a normal Crayola, Crayola marker. They're about the half length one, so it's good for like a kind of a preschool oh, I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. kid. Yeah, and they're they're like super cool, and so and Ellie loves them, and like plays gets like super gets a lot of time out of playing with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so we like to have them around and was buying more. And uh, Karen had bought in the first pack, and so I was like, well, I you know, I think I'll get some more. A couple of them have worn out or whatever, and so I go to buy them, and I think and I see that they have a def- couple different varieties of how many colors that that you can get, and I was like, well, yeah, they have this one box of like twenty four colors, but. Like, that's like a huge splurge. Like, it doesn't make sense to spend that much money on a three-year-old that she would have 24 colors. Because when I was a kid, that was like, oh, man, if you had the 24 colors of markers, like, like oh, they, that's fancy. It was four ninety nine Canadian for 24 <laughs> markers of, of every color of the rainbow. That's almost nothing. Oh, my It's Lord. almost nothing. That That's incredible. You know, when I was growing up, so I was born in 82, um, and I remember in elementary school, which is to say let's see, ages six through 10-ish thereabouts, Uh, when you had your box of crayons, I remember that most kids would have like 16 or maybe like 24, but then there were like the real rich kids and they would have, do you know what I'm thinking of? I don't even know how to describe it, but it was like, uh, I'm trying to think of what's a similar size, like a paperback book-sized box of crayons that was like four or five rows deep and it was like, 12 or 20 crayons wide and it was amazing and you knew a kid was rich i definitely knew the thing you were talking about and i lusted after those multi crayon Mm -hmm. boxes the the top end when when we were kids was the 96 color crayola box that was so there were so many colors that there was like a little shelf inside the box so that you could get at the back layers Mm -hmm. and then there would be sub boxes within the box yep 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 yep. um and that when like that to me as a kid was like the you were you know you were 
ballin if you had yep. that Absolutely. box of crayons. Yeah, I'm looking at on Amazon a 64, which appears to also be within the threshold of like sub boxes and multiple layers and so on and so forth. And this looks like what I remember. And it was intense. Again, like I cannot overstate how rich you had to be in order to have this box of crayons. And I have no idea how much it cost in the late 80s, early 90s. But today on Amazon here in America, $15.34, free one day shipping. <laughs> okay, this is, I've now find the, found a 96 color box, which is the, the one that when I was a kid that I had seen that mm-hmm. was like the hero, hero box. And one of the Amazon reviews for this 96 box color box of crayons is titled way too expensive with lots of lies. Oh God. It says this is $8.49, but it, <laughs> but it only cost $4.49 at Walmart. I accidentally ordered this without doing research. Oh no. That, that four, I mean, I shouldn't poke fun. Like $4 isn't an insignificant amount of money, but well, it's double the cost, but, but still, you know, on the, on the whole, which is, I think your point, you know, if you'll permit me to put some words in your mouth on the whole, you know, eight to twelve dollars or fourteen for this ninety-six as I look at it, thirteen thirty is what I'm looking at at the moment. That's really not a lot of money for ninety-six crayons in a fancy box, a two-two, a two-level box, which I think they used to have like sharpeners built into the side or something like that, if I remember yes. right. It was yeah. very fancy. Oh no, in the back. There you go. There's like a porthole in the back, which uh, maybe that placement's a little weird, but that's neither here nor there. And uh, you can you can just sharpen your crayon right inside the box. Very fancy for $13.30 American. I have here, I'll also look in, but in the show notes, um, and there's lots of these online. This is just one of the various ones. Uh, a Toys R Us catalog from 1993, which is just fun to oh, look at anyway, man. regardless. That must be great. Yeah, so I just sent you a link of that, and I'll link that up. But there's lots of little things in there that seem they, like they are... The, roughly the same prices as they would be now or maybe a little bit more um except that money is worth way less now because this is from more than 20 years ago right um and so it's just kind of interesting um some and some of the things have gotten like are about the same but there's it's just kind of interesting also it's just fun to look at toys when you're a kid and be like oh i remember that so to that like, end, oh, people paid a hundred dollars for virtual eraser on sega genesis <laughs> <laughs> so to that end i'm looking i'm scrolling through this link and I hit the page of Power Wheels where there's a Power Wheels, oh, two Power yeah. Wheels Jeeps, a Power Wheels quad or four wheeler or what have you, a Power Wheels Barbie Lamborghini. And I have to ask you, uh, when I was a kid, I'm the eldest of three boys and my immediate younger brother had a Power Wheels Corvette and all I wanted oh, in the wow. world was a Power Wheels and that little jerk got it instead of me. And I I wonder, have you with with your daughter bought her anything that you wish you had as a kid because i bring up power wheels because guess what my eldest child declan who is almost five (laughs) he has a power wheels mustang so he doesn't have to live through the pain the pain the the, the ridiculous suffering that i had to live through alan and he gets the indignity that is the word i was looking for thank you sir uh and so he gets to drive around in his power wheels have you gotten into that yet i mean she's still a little young for that sort of thing but have you already started spoiling her with 96 count boxes of crayons well i kind of have because i bought her the 12 i bought her the 12 color (laughs) markers which was very much like when i was a kid i would have I really wanted the more colors and sometimes would get them. Mm-hmm. But like, I remember being like, oh, the, 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 the people who have the, all the colors and I just have this smaller number. Mm-hmm. And so I like, as soon as I saw that and she like three, she doesn't know. She just wants the pink one. But the, the, 
ability to give that to your kid and then of course every generation will pass that down whatever it is that i don't give her and then she wishes like yep. oh could i have the annoying toy that makes sound and i'm like no <laughs> and then she her, her kids she'll be like well i always wanted the annoying toy that made sound or mm-hmm. whatever so uh, that's tremendous there's a uh, save ten dollars on the Gloob game genie for super nintendo did you ever have those i think we rented a game genie uh-huh. once um and uh my brother and I would get a lot of entertainment, not just out of the like cheats and whatever, but then if you would enter some of the codes, either the the intentional codes or you would make a typo or something, it would sometimes cause some fairly uh, hilarious bugs in the games where things would be like glitching out yeah, and yeah, things yeah. wouldn't be drawing properly and stuff like that. And I got a lot of entertainment out of that too. How did that? I, I need to dig into how that worked behind the scenes. Were they just overriding like memory or something like that? I I think all it was doing is it would. Get basically get a memory address and what do I write into that memory mm-hmm, address? Mm-hmm. And so the code would be like a not hex, but maybe hex or like basically sure, sure, or something. Sure. Yeah, yeah. You just type a bunch of numbers and letters and it would be like, okay, well, this is only like an 8-bit or 16-bit system. And so to address a certain part of the memory and to put a certain thing in there, then that's something you could just type in. Mm-hmm. And the games were often simple enough that there would just be like, let's say, one byte of memory that had the jump that made it so that, right, oh, if right, you're... Right, right your coins were to get to 100 then it would stop at 100 and then you like just take out that jump yep. and mm-hmm. put it somewhere else or you whatever do something fairly simple and then suddenly the game would behave differently in a way that it was of course completely untested and the developers <laughs> had no, <laughs> no responsibility for the consequences thereof god i just remember thinking it was amazing back in the day to be able to just like change the game because even then as a at best budding software engineer i knew enough to know that like these things had read-only memory you know they had roms on them and somehow you were by interjecting or intercepting you know the transmission between the the cartridge and the nintendo you could you could suddenly change the game man it was amazing oh that's funny yeah my assumption was that it would write to the ram but you could imagine the game genie because the way it was was that you would plug the game genie into your Mm -hmm, nintendo mm -hmm. and then you plug the game into the game Mm -hmm. genie so the game genie could have intercepted a request like if the nintendo said oh well what in the rom like it could in theory make the rom appear to be different as well like if the nintendo tried to load from a piece of memory on the cartridge then the game genie could intercept that and say oh actually this thing that you're asking for that normally the cartridge claims should be 49783 i'm just going to answer zero right 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 so you could kind of go both ways, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, well, if I ever come back to Fun Fact, you know, when one of you has a, has another child, then I'll have some longstanding follow-up for, for everyone. That is awesome. I will hold you to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alan, Fun Fact, by certain measures, America only has 46 states. <laughs> is this another uh, swipe at West Virginia? <laughs> <laughs> no. Well done, sir, but no. Uh, there are four states in this sometimes great union that are actually commonwealths so ah, so okay. the state in which i live virginia as well as pennsylvania massachusetts and kentucky are all commonwealths and this derives from the traditional english term for quote political community founded for the common good and so as far as the greater united states is con- is concerned we're, we're states like there's really no difference but internally to these states to varying degrees, we think of ourselves as special and or different. So uh, as an example, you know, sometimes there will be a, instead of a state's attorney or like a district attorney or something like that, you'll have the Commonwealth's attorney and, oh, and things of that nature. Um, Kentucky, and this is what I was alluding to earlier in the episode, 
Kentucky was actually part of Virginia at one point and eventually split off from Virginia. In fact, the whole of Kentucky was one county in Virginia. Now, I don't know, you guys probably have counties or some analogous thing to a county. Yeah, analogous um, thing. And counties here in, in in the states, you know, some states they count for a lot. In Virginia, that's one of them. In some states, they count for almost nothing. In Connecticut, where I used to live, is one of those where the county didn't really matter. But I can assure you that most counties are not the size of an entire U.S. state. And as it turns I out... I mean, that's the kind of thing that would make you be like, if they're not even going to subdivide this, we're going to declare independence right. from Virginia and make our own. Yep. <laughs> and that's pretty much what happened. And Kentucky is the only commonwealth that is not one of the original 13 colonies. Additionally, two territories are commonwealths. Uh, Puerto Rico and the Northern Mariana Islands are both uh, self-described as commonwealths. Uh, I can tell you that it is very wishy-washy whether or not you know Virginia is, a, is self-recognizes as a state uh, from time to time. So for example, this never really occurred to me until I was doing research for this show, but I knew that here in the Richmond area, we have Virginia Commonwealth University, which is VCU, which is a relatively big public school that's in the city of Richmond proper. And I also was aware of Virginia State University. And that is a historically black college that's in the uh, southern end of the Richmond suburbs. But the point here is that you have Virginia Commonwealth University and Virginia State University. And both of those are, you know, honest to goodness, universities recognized by the state or the Commonwealth, the whole rigmarole. Um, and, <laughs> by the and additionally, thing. by the thing. And additionally, uh, the school in which I graduated, Virginia Tech, as most people know it, the full name, I can tell you as a former tour guide, fun fact, I was a tour guide at Virginia Tech. Uh, the ah. full name of that school, as I can tell you as a former uh, tour guide, is Virginia Polytechnic Institute and not Commonwealth University, but State University. Huh, interesting. Yeah, so if you consider a Commonwealth not to be a state, which would be wrong, but again, I need this for the fun fact to be fun, then <laughs> if that's the case, uh, you lose four states of the Union. You do not have Virginia, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, or Kentucky. So 46 states and four Commonwealths. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's right. That's interesting to me because I, when I hear the word Commonwealth, I think of like the Commonwealth of former British countries right 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 mm -hmm. and the funny thing about it is is that from what i gathered from doing my research that the commonwealth was used symbolically to emphasize the fact that the states don't have a government based on the uh, based on the crown but rather on the common consent of the people so the whole point of the of, of embracing the idea of it being a commonwealth was that hey this comes from us this doesn't come from the crown yet with that said what is it? Is it the Commonwealth realm? Is that is that what you're thinking of? And I'm thinking of, you know, the, the, the broader term for anything that Britain once owned, which is like half the planet. Yeah. So the, the Commonwealth of Nations, which is the like long name for what, you know, Canadians and Australians would refer to as the Commonwealth, mm -hmm. is most former British territories that aren't America. <laughs> <laughs> the British territories that uh, didn't table flip and, you know, declare war. And rage quit. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, didn't. Yeah, exactly. The, the former British territories that did not rage quit. Um, and so we still have, you know, in fairly loose, uh, like they don't have any formal authority over uh, the countries. Um, but there's actually apparently 53 states. And one thing that's kind of nice about that commonwealth is that there are even though there isn't any formal um like there's no authority for there isn't like a commonwealth parliament like there is for the eu there are some things like uh, immigrating in between uh, commonwealth countries and getting visas in between commonwealth countries is easier so there are a few things that actually 
it does have some amount of usefulness rather than, other than just being like, oh, hey, yeah, we all used to be part of Britain and, you know, America too, but <laughs> don't worry about them. <laughs> so to that end, so the Commonwealth of Nations, at least to some degree, recognizes the queen. Is that fair to say? Yeah. So, I mean, every Commonwealth country recognizes the queen to like different levels and layers. Um, apparently the queen the way that the queen is associated with the organization of the Commonwealth of Nations is that she is its human symbol. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which sounds like mildly disturbing. Yeah, really. Well, the reason I bring this up is with respect to your queen, well, maybe your queen, your queen, uh, she is not a spring chicken. And mm, this is true. And so do you expect that when the queen passes, which would be a terrible thing, that Canada will find that to be like a national holiday or do you, or holidays implies good, but you know what I mean? Like, do you think that that will have a large impact on Canada or do you think it'll kind of be like, eh? Yeah. I'll link up with the episode as a few episodes back for fun fact, where we touched on that the projections or predictions are that in the UK, it will be like one of the most disruptive events of UK history, or at least like since the second world war where like people won't even be able to work because they'll be so racked with grief. Mm. Um, <laughs> I think in Canada, it will not be as extreme as that, but I think there, there will definitely be, you know, it will be a somber thing and there'll be definitely, I don't, I, I think that uh, last time that the King died, like a very, very long time ago, it was declared a national holiday in Canada. I would be surprised if it's declared a national holiday um, this time around. Um, but I think that it will come across as a, a kind of very you know a heavy moment and there is something nice about having some sort of stability and having uh even if they're only a leader in uh in theory and in not in any way of actual power to sure. have somebody that takes their their job very seriously about leadership and being a professional <laughs> a professional leader in you know today's world they can you know there's some people who take some positive feelings from that um, but i think the the interesting thing that will happen when the queen eventually does die is that there will be a whole bunch of people who can now advocate for Canada leaving the monarchy or abolishing the monarchy. Just because she's passed in this hypothetical? Yeah, because right now, if you say Canada should abolish the monarchy, which is something that there's a certain percentage of Canadians who support, like it's a pretty low percentage, like 20% or something like that. Um, but most Canadians are like, no, nah, don't worry about like this fine, like leave it alone. And a lot of that is because of admiration or just positive, vague feelings about this particular queen who has been the queen since all of us, almost mm -hmm. everyone alive. She has always been the queen. Like the idea that there wouldn't be a queen, the idea that there could be a king of Canada is like quite unsettling to a lot of people. Ah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't want a, like a, you don't want a king of Canada. No, like there's the, uh, a queen, the queen, the one queen that has always been the queen since my, like, I guess my grandma. Yeah. Like she wasn't the queen when my grandma was born, but she was alive, right? Like it's a very, very long memory of the queen. And so once that changes and it's like, okay, Prince Charles becomes king, then the popularity of the monarchy is probably going to go down and it would become a lot easier to say like, do we really need this particular person printed on all of our coins? Is that really necessary? Interesting. Could mm -hmm. we maybe come up with someone who is a little bit better representative of who we are or what we think is important? So that's interesting because... On the surface, uh, to this dumb American that you happen to be speaking to, 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 to kind of divorce yourselves of the monarchy doesn't seem to be like that big of a deal. But then you start thinking of the trickle down, like, what do you do with money, as you just mentioned? You know, and I got to imagine there's a bunch of other things 
that I'm not even considering because I'm not Canadian that that also have at least a vague, I don't know if reliance is the right word, but like association with the queen that it would it would create a whole bunch of work if you wanted to like really and truly and properly just get rid of the association with the monarchy. And actually to that end, what happens to your coinage? Do you, does it just linger? I mean, I can't imagine you would just collect it all and like burn it or anything. <laughs> no, people will want to keep on to their queen printed stuff. And the, the mint will do a new, um, a new portrait um, for mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the, presumably it will be a king uh, for the king. Um, and they'll replace all the money. There's a whole long giant list of all the stuff that they need to replace and update, and it's quite ridiculously long, actually. Um, and so it is fairly expensive to switch over, but it's even more, it would be even more work to abolish the monarchy because there's all sorts of stuff that, I mean, in general, this is true for almost every country, and I definitely know it's true in America, that there's a lot of things about the way the government actually works and is elected and sits and makes decisions that is obviously not the right way like if you were to design it and like (laughs) send some engineers like how should we get a bunch of people to democratically make decisions and get those decisions enacted into laws you would not design a system where we send a bunch of people into a parliament and then they go vote on things and then a a formal representative of, of the queen has to actually sign off on each law and that that's what actually puts it into law. That's not something that's not a system you would design. But once you right. open up Pandora's box of, hey, let's change the way that laws get enacted, then suddenly there'll be people like, oh, well, we should reform the way the Senate works. And oh, well, Quebec actually <laughs> should have some different rule than the rest of Canada. And then suddenly it turns into a giant mind pit of debate and you know and so it's often much easier to be like okay well yeah you know we pass a law and then we have a governor general who their job is to approve the laws and basically go to fancy functions and represent canada and um they just always approve the laws that the parliament approves so it's fine and so just like you know that old server in the back that's running and you're like don't look at it sideways don't touch it it's running fine it's a little bit like that don't breathe on it don't breathe on it Exactly. And I think that's how some people feel about the legal and uh, parliamentary system in in Canada. The um, the UK, though, I would feel like would be even more that way. And apparently they implemented a Supreme Court after like hundreds of years of not having one, but like relatively recently. Oh, I didn't know that. Fun fact. The UK instituted a Supreme Court in 2005. (laughs) That's like yesterday for them. That's, yeah. that's today even. <laughs> five Their minutes ago. so long. Yeah, that's five minutes ago, for goodness sakes. Yeah. And then just oh, like wow. a few days ago, they ruled against uh, the prime minister trying to prorogue parliament and say like, oh, we're not going to b- debate this thing anymore. I don't want to debate. And the Supreme Court's like, hey, nope. <laughs> <laughs> not happened. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So let me hopefully round out the episode, Alan, with one final bite-sized fun fact. I love it. Fun fact, when artists perform the jazz tune Take 5, they have to pay the American Red Cross for the rights. What? Yeah, so the uh, composer of Take 5 is predominantly Paul Desmond uh, as part of the Dave Brubeck uh Trio? Quartet? Oh, gosh, I'm drawing a blank here. Uh, I think it was a quartet. But uh, anyway, the point is that Paul Desmond wrote it, and when he passed in 1977, 
he donated the performance royalties of all of his compositions, including but not limited to Take 5, to the American Red Cross. So if I understand, and I'm not sure I do, if I understand how this works, that means if you as a popular recording artist, Alan, if you wanted to perform Take 5, you have to give the estate of Paul Desmond the some amount of money for the privilege of doing so. And in turn, they are they're compelled to give that to the American Red Cross. So according to Wikipedia, uh, because of Paul Des- Desmond's uh, compositions, including but not limited to Take 5, they have received royalties of about one hundred thousand dollars a year since 1977. That's kind of a cool thing to do. Like, obviously, most estates, they just go to either the family or a record mm-hmm. label or something like that. And in the state's copyright last for i think 70 years after oh, the death of the author basically yeah. the heat death of the universe you have right. to royalties. <laughs> and so to put it to an organization that's actually trying to do good in the world as opposed to it just going more and more into the pockets of you know wherever the mm-hmm. the, the estate which probably just uses to fund the legal field fees of itself or whatever <laughs> um that's pretty cool i like that i do that <laughs> Thank you.